If you were already on a world tour at 18, you must have been playing harmonica for, for some time already. Yes, I started um, like when I was about 13 years old. This is Patrick Williams. He's an New Orleans guy through and through. Grew up here, never left the city until his band went on tour in Japan. It was a uh, culture shock because uh, i never been out of the country before. That was my first time leaving the city of New Orleans, uh, growing up in the housing projects and going over there and being treated like, like royalty, you know? It, it was a culture shock, man, a good experience. Patrick plays in New Orleans with Rockin' Dopsy Jr. and the Zydeco Twisters. Up until March, things were going just fine. We had three to four gigs a, a week, man, and we were doing weddings, we were doing corporate events, private parties. So I really didn't have enough time for the wife, you know, but she understands. And then the pandemic hit. Down here in New Orleans, that's what we thrive on. We thrive on the conventions to tourism here. So if there's not a major convention in town of 30 or 40,000 people, then we're not rolling. We're at a standstill. I met Patrick through an organization called Feed the Second Line. It's run by one of the Mardi Gras crews, the crew of Red Beans. Feed the Second Line started as Feed the Front Line for nurses and other exposed workers. Now it hires musicians like Patrick to buy and deliver groceries to cultural elders who might not be up for the trip. It brings meals to those who need them and gives musicians some much-needed work. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards closed the state's bars for a second time a couple weeks ago. But even before that, Patrick really wasn't playing much at all. When horn players play, when they're blowing into the horn, particles of saliva comes out of their horn. Or mm -hmm. when a singer sings, if you have the COVID, people are breathing that. The virus is actually in the music. Yeah, yeah. The virus is actually in the music. A lot of bands won't return won't return. Some clubs are, are shutting down because they can't meet the financial obligation as far as rent and holding employees. There's a lot of musicians that probably won't ever play music in the city of New Orleans again because of this coronavirus. Some of those musicians are already gone like Ellis Marsalis Jr., the legendary New Orleans pianist who died from complications of COVID-19 in April. Around the world, the coronavirus has had an outsized impact on jazz elders. Bassist Henry Grimes, trumpeter Wallace Roney, saxophonist Manu Dibango, to name just a few of the best-known players, have all died from complications related to COVID-19. New Orleans isn't just famous for its music. More than any other American city, it banks on it. Musicians like Patrick are part of a culture industry, from restaurants to festivals to parades, that draws in tourists. They, in turn, support a host of other jobs. Hotel workers, airport baggage handlers, cab drivers. As a share of the workforce, New Orleans has about twice as many restaurant workers as the average city. The role of hotels in the economy is four times as large. For going on four months, that entire pyramid has been collapsing because people just aren't coming to New Orleans anymore. And worse, 
there's no sign that they'll come back. Crowded, sweaty bars in the quarter might be the last part of pre-pandemic America to return. Until there's a vaccine, an entire musical ecosystem is in suspended animation. And with it, the rest of the city. It is hard to think of a part of American society that feels more fragile right now than the arts. Broadway is closed until 2021 at least. Hollywood has stopped production. Big city theaters are starting to close permanently. Art galleries are empty. And a recent survey found that one-third of all museums don't believe they'll survive this pandemic. To make matters worse, laid-off artists are finding their second jobs have also vanished. What is happening in New Orleans is happening in your city, too. I'm Henry Grabar, and this is the fourth episode in our six-part series on the future of the city during and after COVID-19. Today on the show, the music has stopped. How long can New Orleans hold its breath? This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good today. Thanks. This is Jesse Page. He's a percussionist. 20 years ago, he got a job working the door at a Frenchman Street club called the Blue Nile. He worked his way into management and many instant ramen noodles and cans of tuna fish later, he had saved the money to buy the place. New Orleans has more than 130 live music venues, and what makes them special is their size. The median venue here is smaller than in almost every other American city. I mean, when you think about our venue, specifically the Blue Nile, the, the musicians that have been raised in that club, we're talking Trombone Shorty started in the Blue Nile when he was probably 13 or 14 years old, filling in for Kermit Ruffins one night when he got laryngitis. And he sent me this kid that I was like, are you kidding me? We have an almost sold out show. I don't, you, I, who is this trombone shorty? He killed it. Crowd loved him. And then he started working on his stage show with us and he'd come in I'd have him come in early on a, a Sunday and just give him the stage for him to practice with his band. Now look at who he is. He's a worldwide phenomenon. That doesn't exist in Clear Channel. That doesn't exist in these monster financial, financially backed corporate places. It's like the, the nursery of the whole music community where we're raising musicians into where they get too big for us and they and they become these worldwide superstars and, and give joy to everybody all over the world. But they start someplace and they start in small music venues like the Blue Nile. 
cultural infrastructure, as much as the music itself, is a unique thing about New Orleans. I've spoken to several people who run venues, and all of them say that even in good times, it's a labor of love. And perhaps the evidence of that is that they're all local musicians. They're not private equity guys, and they're not Clear Channel. My main strategy right now is to secure funding and hold off until we can reopen. Because if I open those doors, I'm losing more money by being open than being closed. And I would lose it rapidly. It costs me about eight or $9,000 a month to have the doors closed. Let me play devil's advocate for a second and ask, if the musicians are all still in New Orleans and they find a way to get by, then what does it matter if the buildings close or change ownership? Won't they just find places to perform and, and people will find ways to see them? To a degree they can, but you know, a music club provides a safe venue for somebody to actually make money in instead of going out and busking. Hmm. If mm -hmm. you have a concentrated place where a musician can play in a safe area, you can collect a good amount of people, the government is getting their tax money off of all it, which ultimately supports the safety because you're talking about police services, ambulance services, you know, all the, all the community functions that you need. That's interesting. So you're saying that these clubs are almost like they're, each club is a structure that converts music into money for musicians. I think it's a structure that converts music to security for musicians. So it's not just buildings and it's not that the venue is making a lot of money. We're, we're providing a lot of jobs for a lot of people, but nobody's walking away from these music clubs rich, at least not in New Orleans, I don't think. It's really creating a safe place for musicians to have security in their art. This conversion from music to security, as Jesse puts it, relies on visitors. New Orleans puts on 85 shows a day, by one estimate, which is far more than its residents can support on their own. There are just so many music clubs in New Orleans and so many musicians in New Orleans. They have been supported by people coming from all over the world to see and support that music and that art. So without the tourism, then these places will disappear. There is not enough local support mm -hmm. to support what we have going on in the city. When Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans 2005, it devastated many juke joints, especially in the city's black neighborhoods. The Blue Nile was closed for months. So when Jesse bought the club, he set up a rainy day fund to make sure it could take a hit. I'm not a man of a lot of money, but I have enough because I've made those cuts and made those sacrifices. I honestly, I don't have a family. I'm married, but uh, we never had children. And that was one of the sacrifices that I made for my passion and, and my love of, of music and the music club. The, the club is my baby. And I think I have enough to last 2020. It's going to get sketchy in 2021 as to how long we can survive. Tell me a little bit about the period after Katrina. Does that now feel like a dry run for what you're going through now? The difference between Katrina and COVID is that with Katrina, it was just us. But we had great advertisement from a lot of great musicians on television every night. Um, people like David Letterman saying on his show every night, we need to go down to New Orleans, put your money into New Orleans. We, we can't lose this treasure. And so we had a lot of people from all over the country coming to support New Orleans and New Orleans music and the culture. But in this case, obviously everybody's in the same boat. San Francisco's in trouble, Chicago's in trouble, New York's in trouble. 
all the music venues across the nation. We are all in the same boat because we don't really know how to navigate this one. After Katrina, displaced musicians found gigs in places like Houston and Chicago. But now their clubs are closed too. Performance is at a standstill nationwide. New Orleans is unique, but it's also representative of the way that city culture, the food, the performance, the art, has grown reliant on visitors. In New York City, for example, 24% of all credit card sales at restaurants and bars come from tourists. So even if New York restaurants are able to open, without tourism, they're a long, long way from normal. Same thing in New Orleans. Reopening alone is not going to make the city whole again. I, I say that I say it's kind of like a black mama. You know, we just have to get it all done, and, and that's what we do. Asali Devon Ecclesiastes runs the Ashe Cultural Center in New Orleans, a central city institution that does a bit of everything. Residencies, performances, summer camp. She works with artists all day. They know my number. They know my email. <laughs> um, I, I, I consider myself an artistic first responder. I wanted to talk to Asali because she understands the challenges local musicians faced in New Orleans before the pandemic. It was hardly a golden age. In 2016, the average annual salary in the entertainment sector was $34,000, nearly a third below the metro average. Our tourism industry in New Orleans in the past, I want to say, three years has increased by $3 billion. It's gone from $7 billion to $10 billion. Yet the workers make the same amount of money. Before she got to Ashe, Asali ran the Congo Square Arts Market, an event that typified the relationship between tourism and the arts in New Orleans. New Orleans is a city that's, you know, largely tourist driven. We get about 50 percent of our um, sales tax revenue from tourist dollars. And so many artists make at least 50 percent, some as many as 75 to 100 percent of their income during these festival seasons. So the large events like New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and Essence um, Music Festival and Voodoo Festival, those big events provide a big source of income an opportunity for our artists. So, you know, they sell at the festival, yes, but they make contacts that, you know, might give them commissions for the rest of the year. But now, of course, there are no festivals and tourist attractions like jazz bars have all gone dark. A lot of the art that we create is for ourselves. So there will be, I think there can be a new normal that, you know, still creates wonderful and, you know, beautiful art, but the ability to make a living as an artist changes. This is not a sustainable system, right? It, and, you know, it just isn't. And that should be clear to everyone um, at a time like this. Asali is worried about the city's cultural infrastructure. But she's also confident that what New Orleans offers to the world is not something that could close. People will never stop wanting to go to Venice. They're never going to want to stop getting in on the, the gondola. They're never going to want to stop seeing the Eiffel Tower or the ancient pyramids, whatever. And New Orleans will be one of those places. People will always want to come here. But what's different about what brings people to New Orleans it's not a structure, right? Nobody's coming to see the Superdome, no matter how fly it is, right? Nobody's coming to see the Mississippi River Bridge. They're coming to experience the culture of New Orleans, and that is rooted in its people. They, they're coming to hear the music. They're coming to eat the food. They're coming to hear people say, yeah, baby, come on now, and how your mom and them? Like, that's what folks are coming for. Sally has some ideas about how to make this more sustainable. 
She wants more diversity on the city's cultural boards and more revenue sharing across the city's neighborhoods. But her point is bigger than that. The system by which so many culture creators in the city and in the country live hand-to-mouth, work odd jobs to survive, and depend on the flighty spending habits of the rich didn't get broken by the pandemic. It's been broken. Many musicians didn't have health insurance here until Louisiana expanded Medicaid in 2016, and thousands still depend on nonprofits for health care. The top musicians, the ones whose names you know, probably will make it through. It's the up-and-comers, the sidemen, the restaurant singers, the second-line players, and the buskers who will get knocked down. The ones who need part-time jobs and lost them. It's their presence in New Orleans, not the name on the marquee, but the clarinet heard from a balcony that gives the city its spirit. Patrick Williams, the harmonica player whom you heard at the beginning of the show, is, for the time being, focused on the next generation. His part-time job starts next month. I'm an assistant band director at a high school, George Washington Carver High School. Wanted to do something, give back to the community, um, like some people did for me when I was in elementary and middle and high school. It's one band in New Orleans that doesn't need an audience. And that's the show. Thanks to Patrick Williams, Jesse Page, Steve Richardson, Robbie Havens, Asali Devon Ecclesiastes, and Devin DeWolf. The version of Sunny Side of the Street you heard was by Kermit Ruffins. Thank you, Kermit. If you want to help musicians in New Orleans get through this, you can donate to Feed the Second Line, the New Orleans Musicians Clinic, or the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. Derek John and Allison Benedict helped with editorial direction for this series. Thank you, Allison and Derek. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Henry Grabar. Thanks for listening. Mary will be back in your feed on Monday. Jesse, have you gotten a chance to play at all during this whole thing? No, I have not pulled my drums out, and I think that's probably a good idea, and I'm glad you actually said it. I've been so worried about trying to maintain the club, and that has been my main focus in all my hours spent on the phone and computer and trying to acquire grants and loans and working on all of those sorts of things to make sure that I could survive and the club could survive. But you're right. I, I, I should pull my drums out. I should definitely do that. <laughs>